All praise is unto the only one wise God, our creator, the God who gifts us with presence that gives us life, the God who is so graceful that God looks beyond fault and need, and the God who is so powerful that God is not threatened by anything within us, that God will release anything God has so that we can be all that we can be. To this God be all power, glory, honor, praise, and dominion. And we thank this God for this moment and seek to be faithful to God in every moment. To the leaders of this institution and this chapel and all who share, and to all of you, my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, creation, and coming consummation, we thank God for this moment and seek to honor God in it. You heard the text read for your hearing. This familiar story of a test presented to Abraham where he had to make a major decision in his movement in the journey of life and demonstrate the level and extent of his fidelity to God. Life for all of us presents us with moments of decision. Some of those moments are relatively insignificant and minor. Others are crucial, life-shaping, and life-changing. When I was preparing to come down here and uh, Kevin sent me an email and uh, wanted to know weeks before I came what I would be preaching, I wanted to remind him of uh, my tradition <laughs> and my story. That's four weeks away. I'm waiting for the spirit to move. No, I, <laughs> but what was happening no sooner than I got that email, I went down the hall and I heard students talking about upcoming midterms and how they intended to pass the test and how well they thought they would do. And I was reminded of tests in the sacred writ that oftentimes the persons experiencing them failed them or calls us to pause and recognize the significance of the test. This is one of those moments where each of us who is committed to ministry and a calling have to address to whom or to what are we really committed? Are we committed to ministry for our own self-promotion, for our own careers? Or is there a level of commitment and intimacy with the internal that links us with the divine in a fashion where my total being and person are offered to God? Have I really said yes to God? Have I given assent to a work for God? But have I ever surrendered all that I am to God? Look at the test. In the midst of it, I would show you just three things very quickly. The facts of the text, the faith in the text, and the future in the text. Look at the facts. You're in seminary. You know the story of Abraham. Abram, of how he was called by God and invited to leave his settled location 
to move beyond his comfort zones, his context, his family, and to move to a place that he was not sure where it was, how he would get there, and what would be the outcome upon his arrival. Already God is calling him, but in the midst of the call, God makes a promise. I never call you to failure, and if you were faithful to me, I'm getting ready to do something in your life and bring from you that which you never saw as possible and which is not on your radar screen, not in your plans, not in your outline, not in your biography. I'm getting ready to do something and something will come from you that you nor the world will recognize if you will only step from where you are, step from where your self-defined future and existence and go where I tell you. Abraham went, went with his family, went with his wife, went and moved and made a covenant with God. His journey is sometimes twisted and convoluted. If you look at the story, I'm still trying to figure out how a man of God gives his wife to two different kings for the purposes of self-protection, self-preservation, and, and self-promotion would step out of this and still be considered faithful. I wonder why the folk who were promised children, children, where if you would step out of your canopy, look up at the sky, count the stars if you can. This is the offspring that will come from you if you were faithful to me. And if you can't see the stars, go to the river's water's edge and count the grains of sand and you shall have children as many as these. This is what I'm promising to you. But yet in your moment, you still go to a slave girl named Hagar and she gives birth that immediately creates contempt and division in the family. And when God blesses you, you put the one who blessed you out. Here we see this story, this fact. But now the people who were barren, though blessed and beautiful, have experienced the gift of Isaac. Isaac is growing. Abraham is kind of beating himself on the chest. That's my boy. Sarah, after her laughter, is celebrating God has blessed me. And now, years later, God comes and the word says, God test. Some translations say even tempt Abraham and say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the son you love so much and I'm going to direct you where to take him and I want you to offer him to me. These are the facts. God has blessed you richly. That's what you dream for. That which you prayed for has now been experienced and there's the euphoria of celebration of the blessings of God in your life and the same God who blessed you now seems to be to telling you destroy your blessing. Abraham is looking at God and saying, God, you got to be crazy. <laughs> and I flunk. I'm not, I'm not doing this, but there's a fact in the text that we miss. If God is testing Abraham, then the God we serve is a manipulative, capricious, insecure God who is playing the infantile games of testing somebody to find out if you love me. You know how we used to do, we'd run play games to try to find out, huh, 
if they really loved me. Hmm? And then that was a part not of our love but our insecurity and oftentimes a way of possessing the one I presume to love that I'm going to play little games to see if they really love me and I'm going to see if they flunk or pass. Is this the God we serve? I want to suggest the fact that we miss in this text is the fact that God is not testing you. Your blessings are. If God is testing you, he's testing you through his goodness, not through his active testing you. Meaning the only reason you're being tested is because God has been so good to you that you are blessed. And now you've got to commit to whether you love your blessings more than the one who blessed you. The real test in life is not delivered by God, but by the fact that God has been so good to you that you have now fallen in love with what you got from God rather than the God who gave it to you. Here's the test. How has God blessed you? Even if he's blessed you with gifts for ministry, are you so in love with what you got from God, you only pay attention to what you got rather than spending time with the one who gave it? Here's the test. It becomes because you are blessed. And many of us have not yet learned how to handle our blessings. You see, God can't tolerate a piece of you. God wants all of you. If God would accept some of your commitment, then it would mean God would be a conspirator in the maintenance of your brokenness rather than your healer. Anybody who wants a piece of you wants you broken. And they don't love you, they love the peace they're getting. And if you want to find out how much they love them, pull back the peace they like. God wants all of you. And so God can't say, I'll take 99.5%. I'll take half of you or the majority of you. You can give the rest. Why? Because then God is saying, I will accept you broken. I want you whole. And in order to be whole, 99 and a half won't do. This is the fact. Even in this nation, we've been rampant with a prosperity doctrine where God has become a vending machine. And if you drop your quarter called the tithe and sow a dime in the prophet's hand, I'll guarantee the bar you want will come out of the machine. Do you love God or do you love your blessing? That's what Jesus was trying to say when he says, if you, if you can't leave mother or father. He's not talking about abandoning mother and father. But your relationship of your, of your mother and your father ought to be a function of your commitment to me. In order to love mother and father, you got to leave them. So you don't just love them according to your world standing, but you call up them according to my standing. Can I, can I just make this plain for a minute? I got my eye on the clock. I'm okay, but let me just show this with you. You see, see. The biggest mistake, I was taught this in ministry. I was taught God first, family second, church third. So in, what you've done is create a hierarchy. A relationship with God, and we'll talk a little more about this tomorrow, collapses the hierarchy. Once you love God, there is no second or third. 
Once you love God, it means that the center of your existence is defined by your relationship with God. And so therefore, everything I do is an extension of that relationship. I do not create a ranking because it means every aspect of my life now is governed by that relationship with God. Let me see if I can make it plain. I'm a dean. One morning I had a student come in, pounding on my door. Boom, boom, boom. And the students know that before I go to class, I spend time in devotion. They know, don't bother me before class. Came and he said, Dean, I'm sorry, I got to bother you. And I said, okay, come in, what's up? Me and my wife are through. And I want you to know, hear it from me before you hear it anybody else, because I don't want my status here at the school to be interrupted because of this. And I said, well, come in, what happened? His, his wife was an airline attendant, and she flew a lot, and she wasn't home every weekend. And she only came home sometimes. That weekend, she came home, and she got upset. And she, he said, I said, what happened? She said, well, even when she was here, I wasn't. That I was not present with her. And I said, well, how did you respond? I said, I got my Bible and I told her I'm doing God's work and you got to understand God comes first and you come second. And I said, what did she say? She said, you and your God go to hell. Dean, you know I can't have a woman like that in my life who won't support my ministry. And I said, no, you didn't hear what she said. She said, you go to hell because the only God you got is you because what you told her in this relationship the only legitimate desires that will be honored in this house are mine you come second and I said don't you realize well what could I said Dean you could have said since I love I don't ever want you to feel like you're second to anything because since I love God so much, I want you loved the way God wants you loved. And I don't want you to ever feel like you're second. The standard of what I do is my commitment to God. And it's tragic how we use God to violate other people. Here it is. The fact is that God wants all of you. And the more blessed you are, the greater the test. Because you begin to get seduced by what you're getting to the degree that you like you're getting more than you love God. And once you get privilege, you will always create a truth that preserves your privilege rather than cause you to greater commitment. You see the facts. But in the midst of it, you encounter the faith when the facts confront you. The fact is I'm being tested. How do I meet the fact? With my faith. And what does the faith say? Look, Abraham did not, go on, he did not quote a creed. He did not recite a text. He did not give you a title. Abraham immediately loaded up the donkey and started moving. Faith is not what you profess, it's what you practice. And faith is incarnational rather than ideational. And we will fight each other over ideas, but will not unite in faithful action. 
You see, there's what we call the propositional theory of truth, where truth about God is diminished to the propositions we affirm. And so we can say anything and we check people off as legitimate because they say the right creed and they make the right propositions. And that's why we can let, call people faithful while they're still sexist, racist, imperialistic, materialistic, and militaristic. Why? They got the right creed. But is faith a verb? Is it an action? Is it not assent to a proposition, but a trustful relationship. So where you move from a census to fiducia, and God, I trust you so much, I live my life for you, and I will place myself at risk before I will simply say a creed and then violate your principles. Faith is an action. I'll never forget when I was in New York City, my daughter, who's grown now, we would walk on Riverside Drive when I would pick her up from daycare. And you come across Riverside Drive and off, uh, off the Hudson River, the wind would be blowing. And one day she shook her hand loose and leaned back and she just started walking. And I said, Erica, what are you doing? She says, Daddy, I'm leaning on the wind. And she said, Daddy, you ought to try it. I said, no, baby, I'm too big. I can't do that. She said, Daddy, you don't know what it, you, you don't know the joy you're missing because you won't lean on the wind. <laughs> Come on. And then three years later, I discovered that in African countries, there is a word that means for faith, which means what? Leaning on the wind. I can't see it. I can't control it. But, Lord, I just trust not in your own. Huh? Come on. Trust in God and lean not to your own understanding. And in Hebrew, one of the words for faith means to put your weight on it. Come on. I can lean on it. I don't want to lean on stuff, you know. I don't want you all to think I'm crazy. But when I was 10 years old, I worked with my daddy. My daddy was a carpenter. He was building a porch. My daddy asked me to get him some nails. And what I didn't realize, he was going to nail down the top rail. But to support me while I bent over to pick up the nails, I leaned on the rail that was not nailed down. I fell off and ended up in the hospital. What am I trying to tell you? Lean on the wrong stuff and you're going to hurt yourself. The reality is... I lean on God. Here is my faith, and I stand on God. And very, very quickly, to show you, look at something else. Faith not only is your action, it's your preparation to be in position to fulfill the conclusion of the action. Look what he did. He got up early the next morning, loaded up his donkey. Come on. Maybe in seminary you loading up the donkey. In other words, I believe God has a future for me. I believe God has a purpose. But I don't go into that purpose without preparing myself to be efficient and effective in the fulfillment. In other words, on my way to the promise, I do things to prepare myself so that I can be a partner with God in the fulfillment of that which is promised. And look what he took. Now, I just, I'm, I'm running through this. Look what he took. He took wood, a knife, and fire. Guess what he just told you you ought to pick up in your preparation moment? Some substance. Come on. You should pick up some resources that you can use for the fire, you ought to pick up a knife so you can cut through the ignorance and have a level of critical consciousness so that you just don't serve up the same mess and you ought to get some fire so you just won't have wood and you can't even get it burning. You got all the stuff but no fire. And then all you deliver is stuff. 
picked it up and he went on and they went on. Now, and he began to express his faith by moving, not by assenting to propositions about God, but giving expression to a relationship with God. And finally, at last, there's a future. Because look at the text. We always want to get to when he sees the ram in the thicket. His faith was not in the ram in the thicket when he saw it. It was what he said before he saw it. Read the text. As soon as he said, now can I show you another indication about faithfulness? He took his servants and said, you all stay here. In other words, I'm getting ready to step into a zone where God is going to do something with me, and I don't need you all with me. The reason I don't need you with me, because I'm growing old, and you all are strong enough to stop me when you see what I'm getting ready to do. And I don't need anybody around me who's going to try to hinder my faithfulness to God. Did you hear what I said? Sometimes you got to leave some folk behind in order to do what God is calling you to do. You can't have folk who would halt you and hinder you being your partner's in the fulfillment of God's design. Let me see if I can make it plain. A few, a few weeks ago, I was traveling on a plane from Texas. Come on. We got on the plane. The pilot says we've reached our cruising attitude, altitude, 34,000 feet. The, the, the air is smooth. I'm going to turn off the seatbelt sign now. Feel free to move about. But while you are succeed, seated, I recommend that you keep your seatbelt passing in case we uh, encounter some unanticipated turbulence. No sooner than he said that, the plane... <laughs> the pilot came back on and said, I wish to apologize for that. The air is smooth, but it appears that we got too close to a plane going in the other direction. That the turbulence in my life is not being created by my journey, but my destination, but it's being created because I'm too close to folk going in the wrong direction. And I may need to tell some folk, no, no, you stop right here and let me go do what? Faith. Come on. And then he speaks the future. God, I speak your future. God, even before I see it. Look what he says. And me and my son will return. Look at that. See, he didn't say that on the mountain. He didn't say that after he saw the ram. When people asked him where he was going and what he was doing, he spoke a future that he could not yet see. You see, if we talk about, and then he named the place the Lord provides, provision. Visio, video, see, pro to see ahead. God's provision is that God has already seen ahead what you need. Even when you can't see it, God has. And you live your life based upon what you believe God sees and not what you see. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Come on. In other words, I believe that God has seen ahead. And if God is sending me somewhere, when I get there, God will already have provided me what I need even before I recognize that I needed it and I would need it. God has already done it because the Lord provides. Come on, come on. Do you understand? So provision is not what you have. It's what God has for you, but you got to have enough faith to walk to where it is. Guess what? Can I make it real plain? You live in the undone zone. See, I'm where it's undone. But if God spoke it, then it is done. But I'm still in undone. And my faith is what empowers me to move out of undone into done until I bump into what's already done. Somebody in here might know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you see? 
God is making provision. And in this provision, now if you understand this, and I'm through, and I'm ahead of time. <laughs> Look, if you understand the text, it was impossible for Isaac to die. God does not kill, God brings life. Why would God require, come on, require death? Now, I know this is going to pose a problem for your soteriology and your Christology if you have a pre-established plan where God killed Jesus rather than human people who responded to the presence of life. Now, here, here now look, 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 look. It was impossible for Isaac to die. Why? The issue is not his death, but how shall he live? Is he going to live by your hand because you won't give him to God or will he live by the power of God because you put him in God's hand? Look at this. If Abraham doesn't go up the mountain, what does he do? Live. If he goes up to the mountain, what does he do? Live. So the only possible outcome of the story is life. So the question is not life or death. The question is life, and the question is how shall he live? Shall he live by your power or God's power? And what God just told you, when I'm blessing you, you make sure that you continue to live your life by my power. Because if you live by my power, even when it appears you won't have, you don't have, and you can't have, the Lord will make a way somehow. And I am calling you to life. And I'm speaking the power of life. I've already promised that you will be the father of many people and of great nations. Then why would I kill the seed? I'm not asking you to kill him. I'm asking you to express to me the faith by which he lives. Does he live by your authority or by mine? And what Abraham was saying, God, I take the gift which you have acknowledged that I love so much and I put it in your hands. And when you put it in God's hands, life comes. We've come this far by faith. God has never failed us yet. God is faithful. Now will you be faithful? Will you take everything that God has given you? The very fact that you're on this campus. Will you be faithful with this moment? Or will you be so in love with the pulpit you're trying to get, you forget the God who called you in the first place? Will you be so in love with the person that has come in your life that God no longer gets the honor that he calls? Because that's when death comes. But if you put it in God's hands, the Lord will provide. There is life. By faith, we understand how the world was framed. By faith, Abel gave a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith, Noah sailed through a rain of 40 days and 40 nights. By faith, Moses crossed the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was drowned. By faith, Elijah called down fire on Mount Carmel. By faith, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walked out of a fiery furnace. By faith, Daniel walked out of a lion's den. By faith, Huldah interpreted the law. By faith, Deborah uh, 
judged the nation. By faith, Sarah conceived at a late age. By faith, Paul and Silas walked out of a prison at midnight. By faith, Jesus got up from a borrowed tomb and said, all power is in my hands. By faith, God woke you up this morning. By faith, you will make it through another day. By faith, you will get a degree from Ashbury Theological Seminary. By faith, you will pass the test by faith. There is a future for you, but you give that future to God and not any other power that wants to call you into misdirected devotion. By faith, I put this in your hands, God, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And today, Lord, I commit